Welcome to The World in 10, the big news stories of the day explained and analysed by The Times of London, with me, Lou Newton. First, let's look at what it's like for those trying to get aid to Palestinians in Gaza. The UN has warned that half of Gaza's population is starving. Carl Scow from the UN World Food Programme said conditions have made deliveries almost impossible in Gaza, where nine out of ten families are spending a full day and night without any food at all. Richard Spencer is The Times' Middle East correspondent in Israel, and he says the movement of aid once it's in the Strip is heavily restricted. The real difficulty is once you're in Gaza, getting actually to where people are because of the scale of the fighting. The ceasefire did get all those hostages out and it did get more aid in, but not nearly enough aid as the aid agencies in the UN wanted. You know, there is still this logistical issue of getting enough aid, getting it inspected and getting it into the places where people are. The scale of the civilian suffering here is is extraordinary, you know, just in statistical terms. 1.9 people have been forced out of their homes. I mean, out of of 2.3 million people. I mean, as a raw numbers, that's huge. And the proportion, of course, is even more strikingly huge. America has told Israel that it has to finish it quickly. Um, uh, possibly things will become easier for the UN agencies if there is no longer fighting on the ground. But Hamas will carry on resisting. They'll come out of their tunnels. And who knows how the Israelis will handle that. from the war between Israel and Hamas has been spilling over into the rest of the world. And now there's a stark warning for Europe. The European Union's Home Affairs Commissioner has said cities across the continent are facing a huge risk of terror attacks over the festive period. Eva Johansson says the war is polarising society and with millions attending Christmas events has warned that the threat of terror is now significant. Jack Porrock is a Times contributor. He's in Brussels. He's told The World in 10 there are also other factors beyond the war in Gaza. Clearly right now... The social divisions that have arisen from the Israel-Hamas war, everything that's gone on since Hamas's terror attack in Israel, and you know the situation for the Palestinian people in Gaza, that's caused a lot of feeling and sentiment in EU capitals, different sentiments in different capitals. Um, but we've also seen a far-right leader win the election in the Netherlands. We've also seen these Quran burnings in Sweden, which have caused real tensions in the Muslim community around the world. Uh, So there are a lot of factors that play into this. Um, I think while we've seen uh, the EU Commissioner for Home Affairs, Elva Johansson, raise this suggestion of an increased risk of terror attacks. A lot of politicians in the European Union are trying also to highlight the fact that the security systems are prepared and are in place. And one of the ways European countries are mitigating risks is by sharing intelligence. So they coordinate relatively well already on this issue. Uh, since since the t- sort of height of the regular terror attacks that we saw through 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, the Europol has been coordinating efforts to make sure that countries are talking to each other but we know that there's been an increase in what's happening on that and that a number of countries including Austria, Belgium, France, Germany, Spain and Sweden are all sharing intelligence and their risk assessments to let each other know exactly what's going on. We had a recent terror attack just a few weeks ago in Brussels 
where a man shot and killed two football fans who were in Brussels to support Sweden in their football match against Belgium. And so it shows the cross-border nature of this. The warning came just days after a German tourist was stabbed to death in a terror attack near the Eiffel Tower. Over to Egypt now, where voters are heading to the polls. It's the presidential election, which is set to hand Abdel Fattah al-Sisi a third term in power. Four years ago, the former military officer, who became president in 2014 after he led a military coup, made a constitutional amendment, which allows him to stay in office until 2030. Then, in October, his most prominent challenger in the presidential race, Ahmed al-Tantawi, withdrew after complaining of harassment by pro-government thugs of both him and those trying to support him. Sara Ahmed is managing director of Egyptian Streets. Officially, the government has denied these allegations, but my own friends and people who have gone to try to endorse Al-Tantawi have talked about harassment. They have talked of pro-governmental figures trying to discourage them from passing on the endorsements for Al-Tantawi, and he actually he withdrew. And he wasn't the only one who had mentioned allegations of harassment. Gamila, another figure who was meant to, to stand as a presidential candidate, also talked about potential harassment. According to several news outlets, a lot of them independent, they talked about Antatawi's phone being tapped and him receiving harassment from governmental officials and being highly discouraged from continuing in the presidential campaign. These allegations, for the most part, officially they've not been recognized, but through private investigation, they have been confirmed. The deputy director of the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, Timothy Kaldas, is calling it electoral theatre. And you can read more about what he has to say on the Times' website now. Over to the world of sport now, where the biggest deal in baseball's history has just been signed. Shohei Otani has become one of the world's highest earning athletes. He's just joined the Los Angeles Dodgers on a 10-year contract and it's worth $700 million. A contract with a value like that sits alongside or even overtakes the sort of money Lionel Messi or LeBron James have signed for. Well, Otani is credited with transforming how the sport's played in modern times and he's considered to be one of the best players the world has ever seen. Now, for over 400 years, Italian opera has been contributing to global culture. And that was arguably the most famous Italian opera singer, Luciano Pavarotti, singing Ness and Dorma at the Three Tenors in concert in 1994. And now, finally, Italian opera has made it onto UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list. That list already included Neapolitan pizza, by the way. It's been a decade-long battle to get Italian opera the UNESCO recognition. It was turned down in 2014 and had to fight off a domestic challenge against a 
espresso coffee. Richard Morrison, the chief culture writer for The Times, told us why this is so significant. Opera is uh, not under threat around the world, but certainly struggling in some ways. Uh, it needs an enormous amount of subsidy. In Italy, there's trouble with um, the opera houses are constantly in sort of industrial turmoil. They need a lot of subsidy. The same in France and uh, in Germany. So um, while it's not struggling, it's certainly not um, doing brilliantly. Uh, and also those great days when people like, you know, Placido Domingo and uh, Pavarotti were around, all those superstars of the past, there aren't quite so many of them around at the moment, I think. And of course, um, the whole war in Ukraine means that the Russian opera scene is, is out of bounds. And all this talk of espresso and opera, I think it's time for me to go home and settle into my armchair with a coffee and some music. The perfect Sunday afternoon. Thank you again for taking 10 minutes to stay on top of the world with the help of the Times of London. See you tomorrow. <laughs>